living with ADHD is like living with a thousand paper cuts. It's not trauma with a capital T, as I like to see it. It's a thousand little small things that create these small kinds of traumas. And so shifting focus helps them. When you shift focus, it helps them in a small way shift their own focus. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. My name is Debbie Reber, and I'm the host of this show, and I'm excited to be sharing this episode with you because it's been a while since I've done a show focused primarily on ADD, ADHD, and this is a really great one. My guest is Dr. Sharon Celine, a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in working with children, adolescents, and families who are dealing with ADHD and other learning disabilities. In addition to being a regular contributor to Attitude Magazine, Sharon is the author of the new book, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and Life. In today's episode, we cover a lot of ground and talk about everything from what a child's emotional journey is like as he or she comes to understand and accept the way their brain is wired and the correlation between anxiety and ADHD to how parents can help ADHD kids reduce outbursts, that's something I wanted to know, and more successfully collaborate with our kids. Sharon also shares with us what she calls her five C's of ADHD parenting, or her key to successfully supporting these creative kids. And she also gives us her thoughts on medication and ADHD. There were so many great takeaways today and just really great insights for parents of all differently wired kids, not just those kids who have attention issues. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before I get to the episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to some new supporters of the podcast, Jess Boyd and Nama Atid. Thank you so much for joining my Patreon campaign and helping me fund this show. And if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support its production, please consider joining Jess and Nama by signing up for my Patreon campaign at the five, 10, or even $20 a month level. That money goes directly toward covering the production cost for this show and keeping Tilt Parenting going. Thank you so much for considering. If you want to learn more or sign up, you can find a link on any of the show notes pages on Tilt Parenting or go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Celine. Hey, Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Debbie. It's so great to be here. How are you today? I'm trying to stay warm, but doing doing pretty well. How about you? About the same. Well, I have so many questions in going through your book, and I actually haven't had that many guests on specifically to talk about ADHD. So we'll see what we can get through. But before we dive into that, will you just take a few minutes and tell us about who you are in the world and maybe a little bit about how you came to be doing the work that you do. Absolutely. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I live in Western Massachusetts. I've uh, worked with children, teens, young adults, adults, families living with ADHD and anxiety for many, many years. 
Um, I love the creativity and the humor that comes along with having a, a neurodiverse brain. And I'm very excited about my book. I grew up in a family with a brother who had a younger brother who had undiagnosed and untreated ADHD. And it was a stressful childhood in some ways and a wonderful childhood in others, of course. Um, but he struggled and my parents struggled with him and I watched the whole thing, you know, go on and there wasn't a lot I could do. And I think, of course, that's why I became a family therapist <laughs> so that I could work with families who were struggling and try to help them. Oh, that's great. So it's personal to you. It is personal to me. And the reason that I wrote this book was because I was seeing over and over again in, in my practice in talks I was giving to parents that parents and kids were missing each other's signals, that kids weren't, you know, sharing or feeling understood by their parents for what it was like to live with ADHD or what their experiences were like. And parents were frustrated that they weren't able to help their children in the ways that they had desired. So this book came out of my, my real interest in trying to create better better communication, better collaboration, and ultimately more happiness in families living with ADHD. And listeners, the book, just so you know, is called What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and Life. And so again, I have so many questions, but even just to tackle that big one, when you came up with that title, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, what what was it, you know, if you were to summarize it, sure, overarching theme that you keep hearing that parents need to know about? Absolutely. Well, I interviewed dozens of kids with ADHD. And of course, I've had many years of working with um, kids and families. And so what I gleaned from all of this experience is that there were essentially five categories of things that kids wanted their parents and other adults, other caring adults, educators, coaches, mentors, et cetera, to know about them. So the first thing was that they don't like when parents lose their temper or when um, they themselves feel out of control. It's uncomfortable for them when they're sort of riled up or worked up and their parent is equally, if not more, um, agitated. It's, it's extremely disconcerting because there's no way that they can regulate themselves without help or without an adult who's also dysregulated. And so that kind of led to the first C, which is self-control. You manage yourself first so you can act effectively and teach your child with ADHD to do the same. The second theme was that kids with ADHD want to feel understood and forgiven, even if they don't understand themselves or why they do things. And this is really important because what this talks about is the second C, compassion, that we meet our, our kids where they are, not where we expect them to be. And this lies at the heart of a positive parent-child alliance. And, and it's important for kids because they're trying, you know, part of the, the, the task of development is figuring out who you are where you belong, what you want to do with your life. And so they really need to feel like the adults are holding them in a space of, of feeling understood, even, even when they're questioning themselves, that, they, that there's some solidity to that. The third issue was that kids want their opinions about what might help them and what makes sense to them 
to be considered. And this is the third C, which is collaboration. And this is essential for working with kids with ADHD. And I would expect, I personally think it's for working with all kids, but especially kids who are wired differently because they have ideas about what might work for them or what has worked for them. And they understand their brains better than anyone because they live in the, in the bodies that the brains are you know, directing. So collaboration is you work with your child together and other important adults in their life to find solutions to daily challenges instead of imposing your goals or your rules or what you think is the best thing on them. Now, of course, as adults and parents, there are things that we know are the right thing that where we have to be, you know, in charge. You don't touch a hot stove. You know, when it's really cold outside, you have to wear a, a coat and a hat and gloves. Right. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, for example, help a child whose room is disorganized. You know, I worked with a, a young a woman and she she was a teenager and she and her mother fought for six months because this um, this girl wanted to have her take her clothes out of her drawers and put them on the bookshelf so she could see them better because they were mostly on her floor. And the mom didn't want that because she thought that would you know look bad. And so we spend six months in therapy trying to figure out um, another solution, try something that the mom thought would work better, you know, and ultimately we put the clothes on the shelves just to try it. She moved her books into boxes somewhere else and put them in the basement. And lo and behold, her floor was like 70% better. And so we, we have to really work with kids to, to, to find solutions. We also have to use incentives that matter to them. Kids with ADHD don't develop intrinsic motivation, those, those feelings inside of us that give us satisfaction for doing something until they're in their late teens, early 20s, and sometimes a little later because the, um, the frontal lobes in ADHD kids connect with the rest of the brain later. Um, that's part of having ADHD. There's up to a three-year lag. And so it's important to incentivize kids um, and to use appropriate incentives. And so that's part of the collaboration process. Um, the fourth C is consistency. And that relates to the fourth theme, which is kids really want parents to do more of what they say they're going to do and pay attention to the efforts kids are making without expecting perfection from anybody. And so this means that mixed messages are really confusing for these concrete thinkers. Um, they need help with persistence and they find predictability comforting. And so routines really foster those important executive functioning skills. And so you want to nurture efforts towards doing tasks, um, projects, following through on plans as best you can in them and for yourself. We don't expect perfection here, but we expect parents to do what they say they're going to do. Kids tell me a lot, you know, my mom will say, clean up your room. And the next time your room is messy, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. So you, you know, until you're so uncomfortable with it that you have to clean it. But then kids say, you know, I go to school, I come home, my mom's cleaned up my room, she moved all my piles, I don't know where anything is. And so, um, uh, you know, I'm using two examples about room organization, but this comes up with parents and I work with a lot. Um, on the other hand, 
that will help with, um, you know, notebooks. How do you, how do you keep your notebook organized? How do you stay on top of your homework, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of these things, having some sort of routines that are very simple can be helpful. And then the final thing that kids told me, and this is really crucial, is that they want more positivity in their lives. They feel like they basically hear a lot of critical comments. Um, they feel like people are always, you know, in some ways telling them what they could do differently, what they could do better. And what they what they need is a sense of feeling like their efforts, what their, their changes that they're making when they do something well is noticed and acknowledged, whether it's through action, like a high five or some encouragement or praise or validation. You know, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson found that the positivity ratio should be three to one. And in my travels, when I talk to parents, I ask parents, you know, what do you think the ratio is of positive comments to negative comments for your child? And really, the average that I get is one to 15. And that is stunning and extremely sad. And so what we need to focus on are positive comments and about the process, not just about the outcome. And that that's what matters to kids. So those were the, th the, the five C's. And those are the themes, how, how they relate um, to what kids have told me. Super interesting. I'm curious about that incentive piece. As you're talking, I'm thinking of Alfie Cohn's uh, conversation that we had. And he, he is so, you know, talks a lot about not giving praise and not incentivizing kids. And so I don't know. I'm just kind of curious to know your thoughts on that. I've heard similar things like the three to one or, you know, ratio of giving positive feedback. Where does the research you're talking about mesh with what Alfie Cohen says about how our job is to really just notice things, but not assign any kind of positive or negative weight to what we see our kids doing? Well, with all due respect, uh, Alfie Cohn does not work with kids who have ADHD. And kids with ADHD are different. And they're different because they receive negative messages about themselves from a very young age. And because uh, they receive these negative messages, those um, negative messages are internalized into a very powerful strain of negative thinking whether it's conscious or subconscious. And, you know, I have been doing this work for almost 30 years, and I have never met someone with ADHD who doesn't feel some level of shame about their being different. And so this is where uh, he and Alfie Cohn and I part company, because I believe that what these kids really need is a lot of positive feedback to counterbalance that um, intense negativity that they receive either verbally or non-verbally from people about who they are and how they're different. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. 
That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. And, and so kids with ADHD are also concrete thinkers and they, uh, they have a now or not now brain. So if something is happening now, they're going to want to do it. If it's appealing now, I want to do it. If it's not appealing now, I don't want to do it. If you do not have ADHD, you can delay your gratification. But if you have ADHD, you can't do that. And so it's a very different kind of parenting um, because it, it has to be, it's more than noticing. It has to include that acknowledgement to balance all of that negativity. And I've talked to a number of kids about this and I've worked with hundreds of families and essentially when parents shift into a more positive parenting style where they're um, noticing what kids are doing, when they incentivize tasks, these kids begin to develop an internal motivation because I'll explain that in a second. And they start to feel like, oh, I can do things right. I can accomplish what I set out. And so that is, that it's just different. You know, as I said earlier, I'm going to expand on the motivation thing because I think it's really important. There are two kinds of motivation. There's intrinsic motivation, which is inside of you, and extrinsic motivation, which is something outside of you. So um, intrinsic motivation is, 
I um, I enjoy writing and I want to write a good book report because I enjoy that process and I'll feel good when it's complete. Um, a, neurotypical kids can do that. Extrinsic motivation is I have to write a book report. I liked my book. I like to write free flow, but I don't really like to follow um, the structure. I have to do it. I don't want to do it. I get started. I'm really bored. I can work for about 10 minutes. So they need to have a whole different way of approaching things because over time, extrinsic motivation will translate into intrinsic motivation as a child develops and, you know, enters their late teens and early 20s. So for, for kids with ADHD, for example, who have tasks that they have to do that they don't like, you have to chunk those tasks so that they're small enough that they can actually get started. If you have to write a book report, for example, or a paper for school, if your kids are in high school, you know, you see that whole paper in front of you, you're going to be like, whoa, my God, it's like the mountain, I can't climb it. So you break it down. All I'm going to do is write the introduction today. That's it. Right. And how much how much time am I going to do that in? And what how how am I going to set up time breaks? And what's my reward going to be when I've worked for an hour? Can I you know have a snack? Can I do ten minutes of social media that's you know monitored? Like whatever it is, it's very you know it's important that kids have help with these things because the dopamine system in the brain, which is a neurotransmitter, and norepinephrine those run differently in ADHD brains. There's just not enough of those neurotransmitters or they don't move efficiently. They're sort of slower. And so kids are not making the connections. And though that system of satisfaction and internal rewards is just not as effective and efficient as it is in neurotypical brains. Okay. Thank you. Super interesting. And I appreciate that. And it also you know, that ties in so much with executive functioning, which you talk about as well in your book. And we've done a lot of episodes on executive functioning. But you say that every child with ADHD has executive functioning deficits that they go hand in hand. Yeah, yes, they do. Because having ADHD means that you have more challenges with executive functioning than neurotypical brains because those that frontal lobe connectivity that I talked about earlier, you know, the frontal lobes are like, you know, I would say the sound engineers of the brain. You know, if you imagine that there's a band in a, in a recording studio and there's a sound engineer in the booth and he says, okay, I need more vocals or, oh, I need a little less drums or I want more of the cowbell. That that sound engineer, you know, metaphorically is like our executive functioning, which is in the frontal lobes and they, it helps us execute things and the connections in the brain and how that runs on systems that use dopamine and norepinephrine. It's just different in ADHD brains. And so um, I think that's really important for all parents and educators to understand that ADHD is a biologically based condition. And so it's not that kids are lazy or they they don't want to work. It's that their their brains are wired differently, as you say, and they need extra support. They need sometimes medication is helpful, but all kids with ADHD and adults as well have to learn the skills that go with executive functioning. And now a quick break from our sponsor. 
Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash tiltparenting, look at the selection of audio programs, download a title, and start listening. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. It also happens to be the publisher of the audio version of Differently Wired. So if you've been wanting to listen to my book but haven't purchased it yet, you can use that free credit to download that. Or, of course, pick any book of your choice for free. Again, to download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash tilt parenting. And now back to the show. So you mentioned medication. I know also that you have a policy of not telling a parent they should or shouldn't medicate, you know, that that's a very personal decision. But I know that people are going to want to know your thoughts on it. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. um, maybe even just share with us what parents could consider? Or do you have any mm-hmm. best practices surrounding medication that parents could be keeping in mind? So uh, thank you for asking this. It, it's it's tricky. Um, I do have ideas about this. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that when children are younger, you know, in elementary school, parents are more willing to, you know, do uh, behavioral interventions first. And then if those really are not working in the ways they would like, they'll consider medication. By the time kids are in middle or high school, uh, if they're diagnosed, then parents and the kids themselves want to try the medication. They're tired. They're tired of struggling. And so my barometer over the years for medication is how much is your family and is your child suffering? Because you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist, I like to help people. And one of my reasons for becoming a psychologist and growing up in a family with someone who had untreated, unmedicated ADHD was um, that there was a lot of struggle that we could have that I think we could have avoided and my brother could have reduced if he had had access to medication that might have helped him and also therapy that um, understood ADHD. So I feel like, you know, just giving people medication, it does not really solve any, I mean, it helps make them more available to learn um, the skills they need to learn, but in and of itself, it's not going to solve all the problems. It's medication makes you available to learn what you need to learn, and it might improve your your processing speed and make your working memory be a little bit better, but you're still going to need cues. You're still going to need some systems and you're going to need support. Mm -hmm. So you talked earlier about the idea of collaboration and these kids, you're hearing that they want their opinions to be considered. So just tying that in with the medication or other interventions, Mm -hmm. how do you think that works best when it comes to offering up potential solutions or strategies? I know, again, with with a lot of these kids, and I'm, you know, mine included here are very concrete thinkers, they can also be very kind of stubborn. And um you know, in my personal experience, there's a desire to, you know, not really incorporate any outside resources. Like I hear, you know, this is, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I don't want to do what somebody else does, Mm -hmm. which is all well and good as long as that exploration actually happens. But how do we navigate 
even maybe having that conversation about about medication? Is this something that's a top down with certain mm-hmm. things? Or how, how do we move through that with our kids? Well, that's an excellent question. I, I think that it's a sometimes <laughs> answer. <laughs> so um, for younger kids, you know, it's easier for parents to do a top down. But my general philosophy and my approach is that I want to include kids in this process. Ultimately, you as parents have a final say. But one of the ways that helps kids even consider why medication would be useful is to explain to them on a very fundamental level what's happening in their brains. And so I, you know, I'll draw a neuron and I'll talk about like how there's like a little river between a space between the neurons that's like a river and the ferries that are taking the the cargo from one neuron to the next. They're just operating slowly and there aren't enough of them. And the medication helps them move that cargo from one neuron to another, move that signal. And when I do that, kids are like, wow, that is really interesting. You know, or they'll say something like, you know, I do notice that I get overwhelmed when there's a lot of stuff going on because I can't figure it all out. So I like to include the kids in the process. And then ultimately, you know, the parents have a say. I was meeting with some parents recently this week and, you know, they have a seven-year-old son and, you know, this child is really struggling and he's he feels bad about himself. He was saying how he didn't want to be here anymore. And they've been quite opposed to medication because he's seven. Um, but we were talking, you know, they, the mother was crying and the father was saying, you know, we don't want him to grow up not liking himself. So these are fundamental questions that you have to ask. I'm not saying that all seven-year-olds should be medicated at all. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, what is happening in your family? What is happening for your child? If you've tried a lot of things and you've exhausted a lot of possibilities, then it's worth thinking about. And it's worth talking to the kids themselves. You know, are you satisfied with how you're doing? Mm-hmm. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. 
Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, and I imagine that changes. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. You write about the emotional journey that most kids go through following their diagnosis, you know, and then can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? And I'm using air quotes. I know there's no typical kid with ADHD, but what do you Mm -hmm. see consistently that emotional journey look like? That is so such a great question. Again, I think it depends on the age of the child and uh, the child's level of self-awareness, quite honestly. Uh, I think for younger children, it's a little bit easier. I don't use the word ADHD uh, with kids themselves unless they use that word. Particularly older kids will use it. But kids in elementary school, I choose I choose a word that they can come up with that describes how they think their brain works. So uh, somebody might have foggy brain, someone might have fast brain, something that is is near their experience of how they feel like they think. Um, and that tends to make it easier to accept that what kind of brain they have. Um, and I might even, and I do that even with teenagers too, like, well, how would you describe your brain? Is it something that goes you know, speed, speedily from one idea to another, or is it sort of slowly taking the long way home? And so it helps because, you know, the, the term ADHD is foreign. It's, you know, nobody wants to have a disorder. And that's the thing that I see with kids. It's like, ugh, who wants to have a disorder? Who wants to have to go to the doctor? Who wants to have to take medication? You know, I just want to be like everybody else. And so one of the, the things that I talk about with kids is like, everybody has brains that work idiosyncratically. Now I have an anxious brain. It's, it's a drag, (laughs) you know? Um, and I've had to figure out how to deal with that. And usually there's a parent in the picture. Um, not always, but who might have challenges with attention. And we talk about that. And so I try to normalize the experience as much as possible for them. And that's, that's usually where they're struggling the most is being different. Yeah. And you, you mentioned anxiety. I know that that is something also that goes hand in hand with a lot of ADHD, ADHD kids. Why is that? Why do you think they're so connected? Uh, well, 30, you know, in terms of, of research and clinical diagnoses, 34% of kids with ADHD have anxiety, but I see a much higher number of that in my practice or when I talk to people. And I think that goes back to that negativity 
um, that kids experience from early on. If you're told from a young age that, you know, not to do this or to do this differently, you start to develop a certain level of, of vigilance um, and awareness about yourself that you're not behaving in or acting or studying in the way that you are, quote unquote, air quotes, supposed to, to be doing. And so that perpetuates a, a low level of anxiety. And as you age, it gets bigger because you start to realize that actually you don't think the way others do and you're not able to produce. You know, ADHD is a performance-based disorder. So you're not able to produce the kind of work that you're capable of. And there's an internal uh, level of frustration that is pretty high in kids with ADHD. And, and I think that that frustration is intricately related to anxiety. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, that totally resonates with what we experience. And, you know, that negative self-talk, you know, and that negative thinking, sometimes we don't even know that that's happening, right? If our kids aren't sharing that. And meanwhile, they've got this running dialogue inside their head, repeating things that, yeah, they may have been hearing or feeling since they were very, very little. So how can we as parents and caregivers in these kids' lives, how can we help them with the negative self-talk piece? Well, that's a really good question. And I think you may not see the negative, you may not see the negative thinking, you may hear negative comments, or you'll see, um, sometimes parents will see kids, you know, acting out, you know, sort of torture, quote unquote, torturing a sibling, um, a younger sibling in particular, putting them down. And that's just, to me, you know, an external reminder of what they tell themselves internally. And so I think the best thing that we can do with our, our kids is not to be a fake cheerleader and say, oh, hey, you cleared the table. I'm going to bake you a cake, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Or um, you turned your homework in on time. Let's go out for Sundays. Um, you know, I think that the thing is, is to is to casually notice when things that you ask are done, when kids might do something on their own that demonstrates independence, that demonstrates effort, um, that shows you that they're, they're trying. You know, I, I had um, one family I worked with for a long time, and their, uh, I guess, middle school age uh, son had a sister who was a few years younger, and he generally was pretty tough on her. But um, at Halloween he essentially went to, you know, the CVS and he bought her, you know, with his allowance, an oversized chocolate bar because he knew she really liked them and he wanted to do something nice for her because she had been the night before very upset because her costume didn't work out and she was crying. And so, you know, it was interesting because the parents sort of mentioned that and then they go on to something that he did wrong. And I just... Re, I, you know, I said, okay, we're going to rewind. And we spent the whole rest of the time talking about that thing that he did that was good, you know, and how they could, you know, notice that that's in him, not instead of focusing on the other things. So it's really kind of about shifting focus a little bit more often and verbalizing what you see without 
a whole production. Sometimes it's just a simple pat on the back or a little comment. Right. Yeah, they hear those things. They make a, I mean, I noticed that just a little bit more pride or beaming, you know, when, when you kind of recognize something. Right. Something small. Exactly. It can be something small. And, you know, I was sort of saying, you know, like if your, if your child comes home and ha- and happens to hang up their coat, why not say, Hey, nice job hanging up your coat. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that celebration. You know, it's, it's small things that, you know, because living with ADHD is like living with a thousand paper cuts. It's not trauma with a capital T as I like to see it. It's a thousand little small things that create these small kinds of traumas. And so shifting focus helps them when you shift focus, it helps them in a small way, shift their own focus. Right. So I want to ask one more question and then I'd like you to share how people can connect with you. But with a lot of kids who have ADHD, that emotional regulation piece is really a a challenge. And, you know, a lot of parents with kids who have ADD or ADHD are dealing with some big behavior, especially when they're younger, you know, outbursts, tantrums, um, kind of explosive behavior. We really love Dr. Ross Green around here. Of course. Yeah. So what advice or thoughts do you have for parents who are living with that kind of behavior and how we can support our kids through it and support ourselves? So I love Dr. Ross Green, too. And someone recently asked me in an interview, what's the difference between my collaboration and his collaboration? Uh, And the difference is that, you know, the collaboration I'm talking about isn't necessarily a particular form. You know, he has you do you ask this, you do this. Mine is more about actually engaging in conversations that are um, in and of themselves collaborative, where you listen to what your child is saying and you reflect back. And so when kids are having what I call, um, they're in the midst of an emotional tidal wave, because what happens for kids with ADHD, because those frontal lobes, that thinking brain, the frontal lobe you think, think of, consider it as your thinking brain, your emotional brain is in the middle of your head, and then what we call um, your physiological brain is in the back, right? That's all your heart rate and your breathing and such and such. When kids are agitated, their emotional brain takes over their thinking brain. It's that amygdala hijack that Daniel Goldman talks about. And because their frontal lobes, their executive functioning skills are already weaker, it's harder for them to regain emotional you know, equilibrium, to, be, to sort of calm down. And so one of the things that's important when kids have meltdowns is to sit down at a time when the meltdown is not occurring and talk about what kinds of things are triggering and um, to predict, because there is a certain kind of predictability, even if it's not like the same thing every time, that there are certain sorts of situations. As you said, sometimes kids with ADHD can be um, stubborn. I like to think of it as inflexible. And so they have difficulty shifting or from one situation to, to another, from one topic to another. And so um, they really, really, really need help. And so when kids are in an emotional overload, 
I like to talk to them before or I mean, after an emotional overload, maybe the next day and say, when you're in that space, what help, what helps bring you back and write those down and then make an agreement about what you're going to do. That's one of those things, because if you can go back to that agreement that's helpful. And what I encourage parents to do, and you can read about this in my book, is use something called stop, think, act. Because most of the time what happens is when people are upset, they act first, then um, maybe they stop and then they think about it. And that's just not a helpful order. You want to figure out how you're going to stop the emotional overload, discuss what's happening, that's the thinking part, and then choose a different kind of action. And so I encourage you to go to my book, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, or to my website, which is drsharonceline.com, drsharonceline.com. And I have lots of resources in both places to help parents with kids who are in emotional overload. And I think the thing to remember, which I am saying for myself as well, is that this isn't something that we just have that one discussion, come up with a plan and then expect it to work the first time. This is a practice. And as you mentioned earlier, consistency and just hoping to build that muscle over what might be a long time, right? That's right. And so so it, it takes time to say, okay, you know, we're going to do something differently during these family meltdowns. And because they're not working for me, they're clearly not working for you. And we're going to talk together about what that might be. And we'll try number one. And uh, we're going to come back in a week because we'll probably have something at the same time. And we're going to talk about how that went and what we could do differently. And so it's a process of, of saying we're going to try to change one thing at a time. Because really, if you think about yourself, I know for me, I can only change one thing at a time. You know, a lot of times our partners ask us to change five things about ourselves, but really we can only do one thing. And that's true for kids with ADHD too. It can really only change one thing at a time. Right. Great reminder. Well, Sharon, this has been super interesting. We went all over the place, which I love. So there's hopefully lots of little nuggets that listeners are going to take away. So I will leave links to Sharon's book and her website and any social media yes. active. I have a Facebook page and on Twitter, LinkedIn, and also I have a Instagram account. But really, my Facebook page and Twitter, I'm, I'm all, always posting interesting articles or, you know, ways to connect with me and think topics related to ADHD on, um, on those uh, outlets. Excellent. Okay, so I'll have links to all of those places to connect with Sharon on the show notes page. And Sharon, thank you so much. Super interesting. Congratulations on the book. I'm happy to be sharing it in your work with the Tilt community. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really am happy to be here. And I appreciated your thoughtful and uh, really interesting questions. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including a link to Sharon's book, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Sharon's website, and all the other resources we discussed today, visit www.tiltparenting.com slash session 144. A quick reminder that my book Differently Wired is now available as an audiobook narrated by yours truly. 
to listen to a sample or purchase it, just go to amazon.com or audible.com. If you haven't seen my TEDx talk called Why the Future Will Be Differently Wired, you can find it on the homepage of Tilt Parenting at tiltparenting.com or on YouTube. TED Talks are all about ideas worth spreading, and I would love your help spreading this one. Thank you so much. And lastly, don't forget to leave a rating and or a review for Tilt Parenting on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Ratings and reviews help keep this podcast visible in an ever-growing sea of podcasts. So thank you so much for taking the time to support the show in this way. And that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.